Welcome to part three of our series on data literacy. In our last two episodes, we talked about collecting data and analyzing data, and now it's time to put it all together. We're going to be talking about how to communicate your work effectively. This is your chance to bring everything together, to inform your audience, to change minds, and to potentially or hopefully inspire action. If you don't share your findings effectively, it may be that all of your previous steps were for naught. This is an important one, so let's dive in. I'm Nicholas Bremner. I'm Jose Espinoza. And you're listening to Mind Your Work, a podcast about social science and work and what happens when you put these things together. So why focus on communicating effectively and telling stories? Well, if you want your audience to listen and remember what you've spoken about, given that you've put so much work into collecting and analyzing this data, it's very important that you you drive home your message so that people will hold on to it and hopefully change their mind if that's your objective or even act on it. And so why are stories effective? We know that stories are engaging, they're memorable, they're, they're more likely to inspire action and change minds than just presenting statistics. We can illustrate this with a pretty simple example. Which is more memorable to you? Jean is a top performer in a B2B sales organization who's a mother of two young boys. She normally works about 40 hours per week, but since COVID started, she now works 60 hours per week and shares responsibility for homeschooling her children. Jean only sleeps about three to four hours per night now and has trouble concentrating on work. Or burnout in our sales department is up 30%. Both of these communicate the same idea, but the first obviously has way more color and is going to be more memorable than the second one. We tend to remember stories, not statistics. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And in large part, something that's interesting there is that in the, in the first example, when we talk about Gene, it doesn't mean that statistics are not there. You're talking about data that you might have collected about someone like Gene in the organization. Usually she used to work 40 hours per week, but now we know that they're reporting in the sales department that they're mostly working 60 hours a week. It doesn't necessarily mean that to tell a good story, you have to take all the statistics out, but it's important to put them in context. And I think that's mostly what we're doing in that first example. Yeah, it's really important that if you do tell a story, that story is representative of a more general trend that you're observing in the data. Stories and statistics both have their own limitations, but when put together, they're actually quite powerful. So for instance, stories are more memorable, but they're also anecdotal. Gene's situation may not apply to everyone else in the sales department. However, if you back that up with a statistic, you're actually lending more support to that story. You're saying that this is Gene's experience, but it's also likely the experience of other people as well. Here's the evidence. Burnout in our sales department is up about 30%. Then the audience can potentially add more color to their minds and think of other individuals in similar situations and how they might be suffering. If you lead with this, with the statistic, it's harder to kind of connect with that statement. Yeah, and importantly, on the other hand, statistics are reliable. They're more trustworthy. If you've listened to our other parts in this series, you know that we've hopefully led you to collect your data appropriately, analyze it appropriately, and now you have a set of results that are reliable, they're stable, they represent real, in quotation marks, trends or changes in the data. And so they're much more trustworthy, but necessarily putting up burnout in our sales department is up 30%. Despite that we have done all of our study perfectly up to this point, we have strong results that we could actually use to make a difference in organization. 
tying that to a story, like Nick was saying, is much more persuasive and allows us to kind of connect with the potential and the importance of what the statistics represent. Now, the reality, if you're the person who's putting together the presentation for your results, you probably have thought about this already. You probably did this because you think it's important. You probably think you have results that are worth communicating. So hopefully in this episode, we're going to cover a few things you should do along the way to make the best of this opportunity. So the most important part of communicating effectively, at least we think, is preparing appropriately. And when Nick and I discussed this offline, the first thing we talked about was just like in the other parts, what are you trying to achieve with what you're doing? Just what is the question that you're trying to answer? What kind of data should you collect to answer that question? Or what kind of analyses match the data? Similarly, when you're preparing for a presentation, when you're preparing to communicate your results, what are you trying to achieve? Another way of saying this is what form of action or reaction are you trying to inspire in your audience? Are you simply seeking to entertain them? Typically in a, in a data-based presentation, it's, it's not just for entertainment. Are you trying to inform them of something? Uh, are you trying to educate them? Are you trying to teach them something? Or are you trying to persuade them? Are you trying to change their minds? And as a result of that persuasion, are, are you trying to cause them to, to behave in a certain way or take some form of action? Or are you trying to provide information to support a decision, to give them an answer or, or a clear direction to go? It's really important to establish what you're actually trying to achieve. What is the purpose of your talk and structured around that? Really, sometimes this can emerge after you've done all your analysis. And I think one thing to, to mention up front is that you should come in with your hypotheses and, and obviously stick to your analysis plan. But as you're potentially doing exploratory analyses and testing hypotheses as well, your purpose may not fully emerge until you've finished your analyses. So do your analysis first, and then you can define your purpose and um, build your story or, or way of communicating afterwards. It should evolve organically from that. So once you figure out the purpose of your presentation or whatever document you're preparing to communicate your results, the next thing we think you should think about is the medium or the context. What are you using to communicate this? And Nick, you brought up a, a really good paradigm, and I think it actually works really well as a rule of thumb to think about what should be in your presentation based on the medium. And that's largely, are you going to be in front of the audience or are you not going to be in front of the audience at the time? Yeah. So that dichotomy or paradigm that you're referring to is from a book called Storytelling with Data. Very popular book. Um, it's by Cole Nussbaum or Naflik. I, I think I'm pronouncing that right. And she basically describes or makes the distinction between giving an actual talk and being there to answer questions or producing a slide deck or, or even a manuscript that you give to others and you don't actually present. So, so both in both cases, you are storytelling, you're, you're, interpreti you're, you're interpreting um, the data, but one is kind of a high context environment, one is a, a low context environment. But basically the, the takeaway is that if you are the one giving the presentation, um, you can afford to sacrifice or remove details from your data visualization, like your charts or your, your graphs, and just focus on a really clean appearance because if someone has questions, you're there to answer them directly in the moment. 
Whereas if you're trying to produce a, a product, whether it's a, a white paper or a slide deck or what have you, um, and you plan on sending that to a, a large number of people or even a few people, and you're not there to actually answer questions, you have to include the detail with the actual document. So you have to be thorough. A, a clear example is an academic manuscript. You know, we we include all of the details about our analysis so that, you know, reviewers have very few questions. Sometimes we even add appendices to add even more color to what was done. This is an example of, you know, filling in all the blanks because you, you're not there to answer questions. Definitely. And, and what I like about this, this way of thinking about your presentations and, and the kind of the context of your presentations is that it, it suggests that you yourself are, are kind of the, the main source of information. You can kind of adjust how you're using your medium effectively in order to, to get a sense of whether I'm going to be there fully available to provide all the information or whether I'm not going to be there to do that at all. And there's obviously a gradient here, right, where you can adjust accordingly. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes if you're giving a presentation and then you plan on sending the deck out afterwards, like in my case, I will often present a very um, slimmed down kind of cleaner version of the deck. But then if I send something out, I will add back information into the deck, like footnotes and things like that, that help answer questions. Um, another strategy is you can just include more details in the speaker notes. And then yes. people who, who see that can, can see themselves. But yeah, it's important to know that depending on who you're sending it to, depending on if you're giving a presentation or actually sending out a document, one format of, of telling a story or communicating your results may not fit every single context. So it's important to consider how this is going to be used. And so we've dedicated only just a little bit of time to talking about the medium and the context and the purpose of why you're doing your presentation. And that's because one of the things that we really want to focus on this episode is the audience. Ultimately, they're the most critical part of communicating effectively. And we think that's probably where you should spend most of your time. So you've probably heard people say, know your audience before. I think that they hammered this into us even in grade school when, you know, teaching how to give a presentation. What does that process actually look like, though? I think that a really important part of understanding your audience is doing research. Um, first of all, like knowing who's going to be in the room or, or knowing who you, who you are sending the document to. But then once you've established that, you need to actually make the connection and understand how do these individuals communicate, what kinds of language they use, and what are their, their motivations and desires. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. So in terms of the common audience types that you might give a technical presentation to. Jose, what are some examples? I, th I think we talked about this in terms of kind of four big groups. And probably you might think about executives as one audience. You might think about technical audiences like your peers or engineers or other people who probably have the same level of knowledge and understanding of the process that you're talking about uh, as, as well as you. Academic audiences are, I would imagine, maybe we would consider, consider them a subset of our, of our technical audiences. They're particularly technical and they have some, some expectations, I think, that, that we'll talk about in detail. And probably the biggest group, if you're not just talking in an organizational setting and you're just communicating your data somewhere else, like online, are layperson audiences. You mean the general public? The general <laughs> public. What is it? Is it Joe, Joe public? <laughs> <laughs> So I think those are kind of four big buckets that are that are easy to think about in terms of these people in groups. Now, one thing is to remember, I think, is that you might have a mixed audience. There might be a combination of these different groups in your audience in general. But at, 
a good place to start is to think about who will make up the majority of your audience or who do you want to focus on? Yeah, in the case of a mixed audience, I think in terms of who you want to um, prioritize, think back to the purpose of your your talk or, or who you're producing this document for. What's the desired outcome that you'd be happy with as a result of this? If you have a mixed audience, for example, and, and there are executives there, but they're the ones you care about the most, really tailor it towards them. And then the other individuals can be somewhat more of an afterthought if you're you're not hinging on an outcome related to that other component of the audience. Definitely. And I, and I think we're, like Nick was saying, where we would say you should start is you should start doing your research, find out who's going to be there, and then try to empathize. Put yourself in their shoes. What is important to them? Now, we are going to make some generalizations about maybe what we think some of these audiences are expecting and what they would care most about. This, of course, might be different in your situation. And some of these come from our own experiences. But nonetheless, where do you think you start with executive audiences? Yeah, so you raise a good point. Um, I would say that in, in every case, it could be distinct because different executives have different levels of technical knowledge as well. So let, like, mm. I wouldn't stereotype and say all executives are non-technical because that's definitely not the case. In my experience, I would say that executives tend to be focused on the so what um, and what's in it for them. And they expect you to be brief and will tend to care less about how you got to your conclusion and more concerned with the reliability of the conclusion and what the conclusion is and then what that means for them. So, so you serve as a person who understands all of the process and how we got here up to this point so that you can be kind of the advisor, the person who can provide the, the final, so what? What is the point of all of this? Get, get, get us to what actually was the ultimate result of what you did. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I find that typically they'll trust that you've, you've done your due diligence and you've done things correctly, and they'll be more focused on the actionability of the findings themselves. In contrast to, I think, probably a really useful group when you're developing kind of your presentation and developing what you want to communicate are technical audiences. Under technical audiences, I think we would include peers. And the reason why I mentioned this before about them being a good group to check things with is that peers are going to understand the process and, and the point of your project or whatever you're, you're ultimately presenting about the same extent as, as you do. So they're a really good group to kind of gut check and make sure that you're not leaving out too much detail, detail that might be really important. And they might actually also be helpful in helping take out detail. And I think that when you're presenting to these individuals, I, I would say they're probably, in, in my own experience, they're probably the easiest to present to because they are the individuals who, who speak the same language as you. They're going to be comfortable with some of the jargon you use. And so kind of linking to your, your point, Jose, is that when you are checking, try and check with experienced peers who are able to put themselves in the shoes of, of other groups um, you know, and, and really understand, are you using too much jargon? Are you presenting things in a way that, that makes sense? And in terms of what the, what, what this audience is focused on, if, if you're, if you're presenting to them, they're probably more likely to, to kind of fact check you on how you did things or, or critically evaluate what you've done. Um, because they, they'll understand a lot more about the process as well, being more technical themselves. I actually really like that that distinction that you're making there, where when we can think of executive audiences as maybe being more outcome-oriented, more result-oriented, we can think of technical audiences as being really good for process. 
Uh, and a particular subset of that audience really are academic audiences, an audience that you and I probably hold really close to our hearts because we present to them quite often. Um, <laughs> but they're a particularly great group to focus on in terms of process. They're there in a, in a very particular mindset that I, that I think is, is really interesting to, to academic audiences. Do you want to talk about that a bit? Yeah, I think some of my most in- intimidating presentations were to academic audiences. But I think that's it's conflated with the fact that I was early career and and less experienced public speaking. It can it can be intimidating because these are super intelligent people who who know their stuff inside and out. And as a student it can be very scary. But yeah, they're they're unique, I would say, in terms of their motivation or, or orientation towards the presenter. Because I, I think that academia gears us towards critically evaluating the how academics are are geared towards peer review and they want to make sure that what you've done is is correct is accurate you've used the best technique which i think is i i would say that the the technical audiences and organizations sometimes do that but academic audiences really tend to focus on this i, I would say that it's oftentimes their their primary motivation is just double checking what you've done i think it you know it's it's built in from them you know, peer reviewing journal articles and things like that. So the way that I would think about it is in terms of how much space or time in your presentation do you want to dedicate to each section? Exactly. Uh, if you're talking about an academic audience, you probably want to spend lots of times in your process. Here's what we did. Here's why we did it. Here's the process that we follow. Here's what we think it's a good process. When you're talking about to an, to an executive audience, perhaps you want to lean more towards the end of the presentation, right? When you would think about the results. Here's what we ultimately found. Here why it's important. Here's why it's important. Perhaps this is what we could do about it. My favorite audience, in part because they're, I think, particularly difficult to deal with if you're an academic, which is where I tend to do most of my presentations, I lay people. And I think they're interesting because they would probably be engaged by the entirety of the project. They would be engaged if you can present it well in terms of the process. How did you do what you did? If you can present that in in, in an effective way, they might be really interested in that. People can be interested in just learning about the process of things. Yeah, especially if you do experiments. I find that if you have a really cool study design, um, people are just generally interested in understanding the the process you went through. So so you could imagine you want to maybe spend equal parts of time in both that process and outcome section, depending on what your purpose is, depending on what ultimately you want to do with your presentation. But they're a really neat audience in, in, in that case. They might be interested by anything, and you don't necessarily know exactly what they would be interested in. You, would be, you could certainly be surprised when you actually get to maybe the question period of your presentation if you're doing it in that kind of setting. Yeah, I think the key thing is, just, is to just make your, your language and your process very accessible. So ideally, uh, throughout this point, we talked about empathizing with your audience. We've spent time to put yourself in, in their shoes, what is important to them. Do you have any tips on how you do that? yourself, Nick, when you're trying to prepare for a presentation or preparing a document? Um, generally, when I when I have done analysis and I'm, I'm putting a presentation together, I really try and leverage what I know about the data, the measurement, and, and the organization that I'm, I'm working for to provide recommendations based on the findings. So I don't just collect the data and, and interpret it and say, here are the findings. I try and take things a step further and say, based on what we found, here are some recommendations about what we should do. And I, I try and give options as well. But I, I, I think that that is usually appreciated to executive audiences because they have a lot on their plate. They're, they're thinking about a lot. And so at least giving them some options to start with 
are is usually a, a good way to go. Yeah. On the other hand, maybe because I, I largely present to academic audiences, the thing that I tend to do is I tend to write questions. What are the kinds of questions I might expect to get from my audience? And usually because it's an academic audience, they're going to have lots of questions about the process and how can I justify this decision or X decision. So I, what I tend to do is when I first figure out what I want to do with my presentation, I basically write, write out my little mission statement, and then I try to write some questions. What are the kinds of things that my audience might care about? Those tend to be probably fairly boring if you're, unless you're really into process and methods and stats, um, like most academic audiences are, but they're nonetheless where I would start to, to get yourself in the shoes of your audience. I think that's a really good practice to, to do, and it, it'll make you come off as you know, more, more prepared overall. Something that's interesting about general audiences in particular is that an executive might be thinking about what's in it for the company. What are we supposed to do to fix this or to get ahead or to get a gain a business advantage? An academic is probably judging the quality of your work and the process. For general audiences, I tend to experience that they, they really enjoy personal relevance. They're interested in it, what's in it for me, not in the sense of, of a selfish viewpoint, but a, an easy way to connect with them is to talk about how it applies to individual lives, how it applies to regular people, whatever it is that you're interested in studying or whatever it is that you're reporting on. I think this is another reason why storytelling is so effective. Um, because when you actually provide an anecdote about something that's related to your data, it's easier for someone to put themselves in the shoes of the, you know, the protagonist of the story and make that connection about what is in it for them or, or how it might relate to their life in general. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I might not have two kids like Gene and, and you know, that's part of, I'm responsible for homeschooling and that's part of why I'm so stretched thin, but maybe I'm a caregiver for someone else. And, and there might be other ways that you kind of insert yourself into the story if we are talking about a, a single person in, in an anecdote, rather than if you just tell me as a trend, here is kind of what we're finding in our data. Um, that is much harder to kind of place yourself. Yeah, totally. Um, you're right. Like even if someone is not a, is not even a caregiver, they can they can think, oh, I'm I'm working way more hours in the week too, and I don't have time for my friends, and now I'm lonely, and they they start kind of drawing the drawing the association. So it, it can be more meaningful for for individuals overall as well. So after you have gotten to know your audience, you've done some, some background research for your talk or before writing your white paper or manuscript, now it's time to really structure how you're going to convey this information. And there are various ways of doing that. A key thing to do, no matter what, is to really establish your main points. What are the main things that you want to convey to your audience? This can be as simple as, you know, we found A, we also found B, and therefore that means we should do C. Some kind of just general or logical structure that your presentation or talk should follow um, that'll be easy for people to, to understand and potentially relate to. There is a, a very helpful public speaking framework that I have used uh, called Cicero. Um, we'll link that to the, the show notes. But it basically helps you put together, you know, what are your main points and then establish a pattern. And so once you've once you've come up with your main points, you need to decide what pattern do you actually use to connect these points. And there are there are various kinds of patterns. Yeah, we're, we're going to maybe cover what we think are 
the broader or perhaps most versatile of the patterns, but there are lots of subtle variations. Particularly, maybe the easiest to think about is you could use a chronological pattern. You could just tell your story. You could tell the the life of your project or how you got to your results in chronological order. Just tell it in time. We tend to think in sequence, so that's actually really easy for your audience to follow most of the time. Here's where we started. Here's the problem we thought we might have. Here's how we started developing our project. Here's the, here are the interviews we did. This is how they developed to a training program. And here's how we evaluated our training program. You can imagine the, the life of a project being presented in a chronological order as a real easy way to present information logically to your audience. Yeah. Another example would be um, just going through month by month how much money the organization has made and then kind of offering some commentary each month. You know, so in January we made, you know, $300,000. Then in February it went down to 200000 Here's the reason for that. Oh, and then in March it went up to 400000 And then here's why we think that happened. So that's another example of a, a chronological pattern you can follow. I think we might both agree here that a chronological pattern is really informative in the sense that you can provide information really well, but it might not be the most persuasive pattern. Totally. I, I agree with that. Yeah, unless you add some color to it and, and you add some, some more interesting twists and turns, you're, you're really just kind of providing information in, in kind of a, a, like a, almost like a bleak or stark way. It's, it's not super interesting. Another pattern to consider is... They call it analytical, but it's, it's, it's really structuring your points in any logical way, whether it's hierarchical or, or categorical, in your audience will, will understand. So you could start, for example, by going with you know, very, very broad points and then going to, to more detailed ones afterwards. It could be just going through logical categories that your audience would understand. Um, so for instance covering findings for different segments of a business, you know, starting with, with marketing, then going to sales, then going to um, operations. Really, the, the options are, are, are kind of limitless here. It's just any logical system that your audience will understand. And so you kind of have to do your own analysis here and understand, like, what, what makes sense? Like, what kind of, of, of categories would make sense to include here? I think a key in using this pattern is making sure that the categories that you use are intuitive to your audience and not just to you. Uh, imagine teaching ab about parts of the body. It probably is really easy for a general audience to think about, well, okay, we're going to think about, we're going to learn about the arms and we're going to learn about the legs separately. You might be able to make different pairings there. You might be able to talk about people's knees and their eyes at the same time based on your data or based on the underlying structure that you, th you can think about in your head. <laughs> But that probably is not very intuitive to your audience. So, so you want to make sure whatever categories you use are something that they can actually internalize quickly and they can actually follow. Yeah, that's, that's a good example. And, and so to illustrate how you can present the same subject matter in a very different way is instead of covering like, like the arms and then the legs or something, you could actually cover the, the muscular system and the, the skeletal system and then the nervous system separately and cover the entire body for each. So that's just kind of an example of, of how you might be able to structure that. So the next two patterns are interesting because they're actually somewhat linked. You could use a cause and effect pattern where essentially you're just going to present something that then causes something else and use that as a way to probably talk about the consequences of doing something or not doing something if you have a problem in your organization. And closely related to that is a problem solution pattern where you start by presenting the problem and then you present the solution after. These are kind of hard to distinguish, but can you think of how we might present these as basically two related but different approaches? I think a good way of thinking about it 
if you've listened to our, our previous episode actually on, on analyzing data, is the descriptive versus inferential approach. If you use a chronological or, or like analytical or categorical um, pattern, like we just discussed, you could just be describing the data and using different categories to kind of slice the data up, right? With a cause and effect or problem solution pattern, you're actually making an inference about what the cause is and what the effect is that followed that, or you know, defining the problem and then making an inference about what the actual solution was. So there's there's an inferential aspect to this. I think that's probably the maybe the most intuitive way of of dividing between those different kinds of patterns. And, and built into these patterns is a lot of opportunity for you as as the presenter to offer solutions, to offer uh, a persuasive argument as to what should be done or what could we do or what will happen if we don't do something. Um, these are really effective patterns for that. And taking things a step further, I mean, these are these are basic patterns that we're discussing. And I, I think that any good presentation or, or manuscript or white paper would tie different patterns together, potentially. You, I don't think you're limited to just one. You can get more advanced. And I mean, if, if we're talking about storytelling, um, that's also a pattern as well. And so every story has the same basic elements. You have your your introduction or your, your I think they call it an exposition, where you set the stage, you talk about your characters, and you kind of establish a status quo. You know, like Mary works for the HR department and, you know, she goes to work nine to five. Um, she, she really loves her job. Her colleagues are great. Then the next stage is you have a buildup arising action. So that's where you identify a problem. Um, you know, something happens that kind of disrupts the status quo. So, I mean, it's just an easy example. It's low hanging fruit, but COVID happens, you know, they send Mary home, they send her colleagues home, you know, the entire worker, uh, the, the entire work environment is disrupted. And then the third stage is you have a climax. So some kind of solution is identified and, and it ends up working. And then you have a resolution or, or falling action where things get better or they go back to normal or there's, there's a new improved normal and there's an end. Pretty much every story follows the same basic pattern. You can apply this to a presentation or to a manuscript or white paper and kind of bring the audience along for the ride. This is a pattern like, like any other, like the ones you just described, but it's a little bit more of a, an advanced pattern that has kind of a narrative arc associated with it. Yeah, and, and it's a pattern that is really engaging so it's a good thing to think about, even if you're using or relying mostly on one of these other patterns we discussed, to try and build up things like identifying a problem or making sure there's some sort of rising action or a climax, something that's exciting, something that is really engaging for your audience to kind of keep them interested as you get to, to the middle of your presentation, right? At the beginning, we tend to have really interesting, really impressive hooks, things that we tend to think are interesting, probably why we did this project. Those all tend to be presented at the front. And making sure that you build in some rising action, something that's interesting that's happening near the middle of your presentation, kind of coming to a crest is a really good way to keep people engaged. Yeah, and the the buildup and climax could be, you know, we we developed this intervention and we studied it and did it work? Yes or no? Um, and then kind of move on from there. And if it didn't work, what do we do now? If it did work, you know, great, let's celebrate. So it kind of leads you into a, a crescendo there in a sense. Now, we are going to talk about 
very briefly, uh, what is really kind of a discipline on its own and probably it's really hard to communicate via audio and that's visualizations. Where do you want to <laughs> take us here? Well, I mean, let's just talk about it in, in general. I would say like, what role do you think data viz plays in, in describing data? I, I think it's one of those areas that is almost absurdly important in the sense that it's kind of easy to overlook the impact that a good visualization can have in communicating your results. Yeah. However, visualization, effective visualization, I happen to think is very difficult, perhaps because I'm not so great at it. Um, what, is, what, is your, <laughs> what, is your, what is your viewpoint there? My take is that it's a, it's a tool. Um, you can tell a great story based on data without using visualizations, but I think it is a very effective tool to communicate data to your audience. There's a technical element of it, like how do you, you know, improve the the aesthetics of a data visualization to make it ideal or optimal. But then there's also the the basic part of data visualization that I think we really learn in graduate school as well is like if you have a kind of data, how do you match the appropriate chart or graph to that data? This is a very fundamental, like basic aspect of data visualization, and they don't call it data vis in grad school. They're just like, how do you choose a graph? And I think this is really, really important. And sometimes people will will match the wrong, you know, fancy, beautiful chart to the you know the wrong data. And yeah. if you don't start with that foundation of, you know, choosing the right um, form of visualization, then you are you're misleading your audience potentially. So an example would be like bar charts are really effective at comparing the differences between groups, whereas a line graph is really good at looking or, or illustrating the trend over time in in a form of data, like sales or like performance of, of a group or something like that. These are really important kind of fundamentals that I don't think we, we really have the room to, to cover here. But I think the data viz is a really, really important tool. Um, it's an effective tool. Um, if you use it appropriately, that can supplement your your story and the points you're trying to make and really drive things home, especially with those audiences that are much more technically minded. Like you can't present to a technical audience or an academic audience without using some form of, of chart. And I, academic presentations are, I would say, are very guilty of using tables. I don't think tables are necessarily a great way of illustrating results, but it's really common in, in, in academic presentations for people to use tables like to, to illustrate results of a regression because it, it provides all the detail there, right? Yeah. Um, that academic audiences really want to know. If we were going to give our, our on-the-spot commandments for data Viznik, what's one that you would recommend? Hold on, commandments? Yeah, things <laughs> I'm not, you should. I'm not, I'm not giving myself that level of credibility here. How about let's, or, let's, let's call hot takes <laughs> or basic tips. Takes. So okay. in, in terms of basic tips, I mean, I, I think like keeping it really, really simple is, is good. I mean, I, I think like if, if you have the opportunity to talk over your, your data visualization, keep the details as sparse as possible and, and like direct people to aspects of it. I would say the simpler it is, the less directing you have to do, the better. I mean, really, I think a chart should speak for itself in most cases. Like it should be very, very readily apparent what people are looking at. And your audience shouldn't have to spend so much time looking at it and interpreting it so they're not listening to you anymore. Yeah. The longer it takes them to interpret it, 
the less they're, they're listening to you. Uh, yeah, my tip would be to to make sure that you you remember that your visualizations are tools, like Nick was saying, and and I tend to think of them as accents, and they're accents to what you're saying. In the same way, when you hit the next point on on your pointer, and, and the text will show up on the slide, you can do the same thing with your graphs and your figures and your visualizations. They can look very sparse as a kind of an initial taking of information for individuals. But then on top of that, you could actually make sure that you pop on the particular extra detail for the statistics that you're most interested in onto the chart itself. So the chart can kind of, it doesn't have to just show up in its complete form immediately. You can kind of use it to, as a way of of developing your story throughout the slides. So let's, to, to kind of cap things off, why don't we talk about how to effectively, and, and this speaks to, I would say, communication primarily, like giving a talk or a presentation, but let's talk about effective delivery. How do you show up for your audience to deliver an effective message? I think confidence is, is part of it, and, and practice is really the only way of, of really getting good at it. But what do, you, what do you think about when it comes to effective delivery? Yeah, I think that's a that's a good point. I think there's a I think there's a good reason to separate confidence that comes from preparation and knowing that you know the information, that you have actually not done this and rushed the night before, and you're able to answer questions and you're able to adapt to what's happening with the audience and being what t- people typically might think of as a confident presenter, as you know, someone who's maybe bombastic and can move around and wave their arms and has really good rising and falling in their voice and all of those aesthetically pleasing aspects of presentation. I think those are things that obviously you can practice and learn on your own, but practice and the confidence that comes from knowing the information is probably the most important thing that anybody can do. Yeah. I, I One thing that comes to mind is um, I was listening to one of the masterclass courses, actually. I think it was on, on Thinking Critically um, with Neil deGrasse Tyson. And one one thing he said that, that stuck out to me was that he's, he's done tons of interviews and, and people tell him that you know, he always comes off as, as so confident and, and being able to, he just like knows his stuff like on the fly. And he said that what he does to to appear like just very casually knowledgeable is that he prepares like crazy. He spends a lot of time preparing for his interviews all the time. Um, and I would say like from personal experience, that's, that's relatable. Like the more I spend, like the more time I spend preparing, the more comfortable I feel in front of the audience. And the more quickly I can I can access, you know, facts and other statistics just kind of off the cuff. And it appears more casual, but really you are way more prepared. It doesn't have to appear like stiff and rigid if you've prepared everything. Yeah, I think another important part of that is that preparing doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to know everything on the spot. It's okay to, to when you're having an engagement with your audience to say, well, you, I can't answer that question right now, but maybe you could with your data. And in that case, you should make sure that you do that and get back to those people. Don't just say you're going to look into that and then never follow up. I think a, a really important part of, of presentation is almost the follow-up after the presentation if there is something that that you can do to kind of further communicate the results to your, effectively to your audience. I think to, to build on that, if you if you can't answer someone's question in the moment and you actually can't answer it with the data that you even have, um, even by doing further analysis, I think it's it shows integrity to to own up to that and say that you know data do have limitations and and explain why you actually can't necessarily answer that question and that, that I think that comes with educating the audience to be more data literate as well. Um, sometimes data can't answer every question that you you want it to, um, so it's important to specify that. 
So we've largely focused on effective delivery. And in fact, in much of, our, of, the, of the, the podcast episode today on kind of presentations, do we maybe have any quick tips in terms of effective delivery and documents or, or things that where you won't be in front of the audience to engage with them and talk to them about your results? Yeah, I think as we, I mean, I, I'd be curious about your take on this, it, but I think like include every detail you can that's relevant. If something, if, if, some, if someone might have a question about something, include it, but put it in an appendix, like put most stuff in an appendix. That's what I do. I include like the, the main pieces of the narrative or the main points and those connective pieces of the pattern in the main part of the document, I try and keep it as concise as possible. Um, and then if there's something technical or something extra, I move it to an appendix and I just kind of go nuts with the length of the appendix because, you know, yeah. it's, it's not the, yeah. you know, they're not expected to look at that, but if, if they have a question, it's there. What about you? Yeah. I really like that that perspective. I think append, like liberal use of appendices is great in almost any document because no one has to look past the last page of the main part of the document, right? Whether that's a slide or anything else. I think this actually works really well in slide decks, having slides at the end that just are basically detailed versions of, of something yeah. you had before yeah. is really good. Um, I think something that is really effective in documents is headings. Lots of headings that are obviously logical and not just extraneous are really good for kind of giving your reader a break. Having them come to a heading, see that there's a new idea that's going to be presenting, especially as presented, especially if it's going to be something that's maybe a little bit more technical or something that is persuasive in some way. Using mm -hmm. good headings and nested headings is, is really important. So, so spend some time thinking about that. It's basically a part of outlining. If you decide to outline beforehand, using your headings as a way of outlining is really easy to do this. Yeah, that's that's a good point. It helps the reader skim through the document as well. Um, mm -hmm. Like your whatever you're writing should follow a logical pattern, but if you use headings to really denote when you're switching topics, it can help the reader just understand and 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 find the kind of like logical flow of the document if they're going through with a really quick first pass. It's quite helpful. So this is the the end of part three of our of our series on, on data literacy. Hopefully, you have learn something or at least enjoyed parts of it. <laughs> Hopefully you're fully data, data literate now. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So these are like, and like we said at the beginning, why we, why we decided to do this series, this is quite a, a very broad and, and very difficult topic. We're covering quite a bit in, in each episode. We want you to use this as an opportunity to kind of just start thinking about these things. We, we are trying to provide your resources in the show notes. So we always recommend that you go there, tend to provide links to books that, that we've used for this before or academic papers or, or journal articles that, that can really help uh, inform that part of, of the episode. Or if you know of any actual data literacy commandments that exist, maybe <laughs> chiseled into a tablet somewhere, we'd love to hear about those, if those exist. <laughs> now, we think that maybe, particularly for the presentation aspect, one of the best ways to, to improve your presentations is to model the behaviors of others effectively. So one of the things that we want you to think about is to, to go and view one of your favorite talks and analyze it through this lens. Yeah, this is, this is a great practice to, to help learn. I mean, you can learn by, by practicing and then the other way we learn is by modeling the behaviors of others. And so when you found a, a presentation of someone you really admire, you can ask yourself questions like, what claims are they making? What mediums are they using to, to present the information? What kind of data visualization are they using? What is, what is their presentation style? And then how, how in-depth do they go into describing the results that they found? Mm -hmm. So if you, if you end up doing this and find a favorite talk of yours, we'd actually be really interested in examples of exceptional speakers or exceptional presentations 
Um, so if you find those, please uh, feel free to send them our way. Yeah, and, and they don't necessarily have to be work-related. We know Mind Your Rick is focused largely in the context of the workplace, but we'd be interested in hearing presentations that you think are really effective across a range of, of disciplines and industries and contexts. Nick and I are actually going to try and do this as well. We're going to maybe try and find each of us one presentation that we think is really engaging and maybe worth checking out as, as a potential place to draw some behaviors to model. We definitely want to hear from you. So you can always send us a tweet at mindyourwork.io on Twitter, or you can send us an email at mindyourworkpodcast at gmail.com. Our website is also at mindyourwork.io. So if you're looking on your phone and you find that sometimes it's kind of difficult to you know follow the links to the, to the show notes there, we always post all of the show notes for each episode on the website as well. So you can go there for an easier way to, to get to those links. I'm Nicholas. I'm Jose. And we'll see you soon. That's a, that's a great intro, by the way. I really like that Thanks. one. Thanks. Just wrote that off the cuff, man. <laughs> just out here killing it. That's just what I do. <laughs> <laughs>